we're going to be in the book of Daniel, uh, the second chapter, starting in verse 24 today. And these past several weeks, you know, we've been working through, uh, through the book of Daniel in a series we're calling Eternal Hope. And what we're seeing throughout that book is that God's people, even if they're in the worst circumstances imagine, imaginable, if the hardest situation they've ever faced before, they're called to have a hope in God both in what God has already done for them and for what he promises to do for them in the future as well. So as we settle in this morning, uh, I just want us to think for a second about our hearts. Obviously, uh, just a little bit more than the large muscle that's in the middle of our bodies. I'm, I'm thinking more about hearts as they're described in the Bible. You know, Scripture usually says that the heart is often where our wills, our, our desires, our emotions, and, and, and everything good or bad of a person is seated and found. It, it's out of the heart that we can, are able to see the fruit that a person bears. But, but I want you to think of what comes to mind when I offer you this phrase. You could have whatever your heart desires. It's pretty nice, right? I mean, it almost sounds like a, a genie asking questions, and, and you know, you get to think this through. Now, I'm sure all of us, as responsible uh, wish makers uh, to a responsible wish granter, would probably think, uh, you know, how can I maximize this as, as good for me and, and for, you know, the rest of mankind as well, I'm sure. But, but probably at a, at a very basic level, there might be a few different ways we would make wishes or, or think about what our heart desires, but usually the first things that come to mind are some version of, of money, of, of health, of relationships being fixed, of, of very basic human desires. That, that, that's something we want at a basic level, to, to prosper or even to be known by our prosperity. That, that basic human wish is to be great or to be associated with greatness. We want to be seen as part of something that's influential, something that's important, something that's historic, something that's meaningful, something that wins. I'm calling our sermon today a statue and a stone. I told the uh, people in childcare, I kind of felt like C.S. Lewis putting a, a title together, but that's about as far as I can get on creativity. But just reading through this text will show why I chose that. We're going to see this morning that that desire, that, that basic instinct we have for whatever our heart desires, it's a disordered desire. As great as our own personal kingdoms might be, there is a much greater kingdom for us to seek, one that is built on something truly foundational. And all those other things that compete for our affections, for our, for our hopes, for our hearts, for our dreams, they shatter upon the very same thing that the kingdom of God is built upon. We're going to see some outstanding imagery of, of a statue and how it cannot, uh, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, we're, we're going to see that this outstanding image of, of a statue is not able to withstand the foundational, but the less outstanding uh, stone, a, a stone that was never touched by human hands. And we need, we're going to learn that a strong relationship with that foundation stone is so much more important than anything we build up on our own strength. And the way that it should shape our lives is simple. We need to constantly develop and depend on our relationship with the stone, the cornerstone. I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer now. Jesus himself, and be willing to hold on to everything else that we're attached to with open hands. The moment you or I realize that our attachment to anything other than Jesus is stronger than our attachment to Jesus himself, we need to be willing to let go of it, both joyfully and freely. Because guess what? Jesus is so much better than anything else, better than any monument to ourselves, better than any history we could recite, better than any building or great achievement or accomplishment. Uh, we are in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24 this morning. And if you're looking down at the text 
or maybe you weren't here a couple weeks ago, it's pretty easy to see that we're kind of coming into the middle of a story. There's already been a lot that's gone on to this point, which kind of shapes the background for where we're going to go forward this morning. So let me just do a quick recap. Basically, the the king of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, had had some sort of dream that that shook him, that, that severely worried him to his core. And so he woke up and he turns around and makes a very unusual demand, even in the Bible, for his wise men, his astrologers, his uh, Chaldeans is a term that's used. And he says, I want you to tell me both what the dream entailed and then tell me what it, what actually, what it actually means. And they utterly failed in this demand. And King Nebuchadnezzar shows just how unstable he is in this story and that he turns around and demands not only their deaths, but the deaths of any person who has the name or the title of wise men in his empire. And Daniel had just recently joined the ranks of the wise men, of these advisors to the king. And so therefore, he's, he's among those who face death because of the false words of the foolish men, the, these foolish men who like to be called wise. So two weeks ago, we saw that what Daniel did was a great example of how all Christians and us today should respond to a dangerous situation. He stepped out in faith. He sought the company of his friends and his fellow Israelites. He prayed to God. And when God answered his prayer, he worshiped him. He worshiped God as the one where true wisdom and power and insight are found. So that brings us to our current passage. He just finished his prayer of praise, and that picks up in verse 24. Let's start there in Daniel chapter 2. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? The situation is still the same. I want the the facts and then the meaning. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these— To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. I'm calling this first section, Dreams That Speak. And a few things stick out here that that are really worth our attention. Let's look first at Arioch's speech, at how he spoke. As soon as he gets the news that someone might be able to get everyone out of this jam, he goes into the king and says, and speaks to him, and look who it is that Arioch gives credit to. It's Arioch, right? He He says, look what I found. I can put an end to all of this based on my own initiative, based on my own talent. And in a way, it's just another one of the king's servants, his wise men, his, his magicians, and now his bodyguard trying to find the solution to this problem on their own strength. Man, isn't that our own struggle today, to, to claim credit for something that we have no right to claim the credit for? But look at, look at what Daniel does next. Before we even get to the issue of taking credit, he, he speaks directly to the king's captain and stops the possibility of evil at hand. He, he says, 
Stop this potential mass murder of people that are innocent for the false speech of a, of, of a few foolish men. He sees an emergency and deals with that, and then he goes and deals with the root issue at hand. And after being questioned by the king, he's got a slam dunk opportunity to say, yeah, I know the answer. I figured it out. But look what he does. He actually answers in a way very similar to the wise men that we saw a couple weeks ago, but there's a difference. He says, yeah, no one can do what you want here, king. I mean, no wise men, no astrologers, no Ariochs, and I'll even say that no Daniels can do this. But guess what? My God can. My God can tell you the facts, but even deeper, he can tell you the meaning. He can tell you both the what and the why. And in these last few verses of the section, it might seem like he drags on a little bit, but he's hammering home the point that before he tells us a single detail of this dream, his God is greater than any other and worthy of respect and honor and praise and glory because of it. Another thing I noticed in Daniel's speech was his way of speaking to the king. You see, you see here that he still shows proper deference and, and honor and respect to the office holder here, even though at this moment, Daniel has the upper hand in, in the knowledge and what everyone wants to know and knowing the truth of this dream. Think about that. The, the, our last time in the text, we, we saw Daniel respond. I think the words they used were prudence and discretion to the captain of the guard. And now he's showing respect to those who have it just by right of the office they hold. What a great reminder for us today, isn't it? You know, that we need to pay attention not only to the content of our speech, but to the manner and, and to the tone that we have when we speak to others. Knowing God as revealed through Jesus Christ, it's the most important thing that anyone could ever know. Jesus is the truth, the greatest truth in the world, but that truth should never cause his people to be harsh or condescending or rude to someone who doesn't know the same thing. Knowing Jesus and having a desire to share the truth about him should actually cause us to display the fruits of the Holy Spirit rather than our own sinful tendencies of the flesh. But with that caution in mind, I do think that the focus is not really on his prudence or discretion here, but, but it is on the boldness and, and clarity and bravery that Daniel shows while speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's not forget, let's not gloss over this. This is a life or death situation. The king, at the very least, is making a rash decision based on a bad dream and some bad advice from bad advisors. And maybe at the very worst, this is a very powerful man who's losing his touch with reality. This could be a, 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 an instance of a ruler or a head of state going insane. And I think the desperation of Arioch to find a quick and easy solution shows that everyone realized how bad this was, and everyone here is just trying to save their own skin at this time. But in the midst of that chaos and confusion, Daniel is a picture of quiet, reserved confidence. And that confidence is not in himself, but in the God who reveals. A mystery had perplexed everyone, and yet God revealed it through his specifically chosen spokesperson. Through his prophet, he was able to make these dreams speak. An illustration that reminds me of this is Martin Luther, when he spoke to the Diet of Worms in 1521. If you're able to do quick subtraction, you realize we're actually at the 500-year anniversary of this momentous event in history. And I think, were we able to get the painting up? Uh, there might be a picture of it. There we go. Um, so this is a painting that was done in 1877 that shows this moment. And if you're not aware, Martin Luther was a German monk who spoke out against several different abuses of what we now call the Roman Catholic Church and was one of the main proponents of what became the Protestant Reformation. But because there was such a close relationship between the church and, and state governments, speaking out against church abuses carried risk to your very well-being itself. 
This was a life or death situation for Martin Luther as well. And yet with nothing but the truth of God's word uh, by his side, he testified that the system of selling indulgence for deceased loved ones and trying to get them out of purgatory, it was wrong. It was unbiblical and it needed to be repudiated. He ended his defense of biblical authority being superior to the Pope's authority with some of the most famous words of the Reformation. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Imagine the courage needed to do this. And Luther did so not because he was standing on his own merit or or knowledge or ability. It it was on the, the clearly stated word of God, the knowledge that God has revealed through his written word, the very same Bibles we have today. And in that same confidence, the, the confidence that Luther had, that all sorts of church fathers before him had, that, that Paul and John and Jeremiah and Moses had, and King David, guess what? Daniel has that same confidence here. It's in the very same thing, this revelation from God to his people. The revealed thoughts and words that he once spoken at, at the exact right moment and time and place. So as we try to contextualize that today, the, the question for you and I is rather simple. Do we, do we have the bravery to proclaim the truth that God has given us? Are we encouraged to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who needs to hear it? And I, I'm not saying through an email or reposting something on social media or sending someone a link as in kind of a passive-aggressive way saying, hey, hopefully you can save your soul here. Uh, but no, I'm saying face-to-face with, with boldness and humility, with love as our guiding principle. If not, don't be, if you struggle with sharing your faith, don't be discouraged, but be encouraged by this. The truth of the gospel is eternally lasting and eternally good. Don't be afraid to share it with others because they desperately need to know what, that, the, that the good news of Jesus applies just as much to them as it does to you and I. When we do that, we're, we're partaking, we're part of God's plan in being the God who reveals his truth to the world. And in this instance, through dreams that speak. So that's our first point. God reveals his truth to his servants, and they are to proclaim his truth boldly. And finally, if you think it has taken forever to get to it, we're now finally at the content of the dream itself. What is it that threw Nebuchadnezzar for such a loop? And what does it mean for him then or for us even now? Let's read next in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image... This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you look, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break 
uh, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. All right, there's a lot to process here. So let's start, let's start out. I'm going to call this section the statue and the stone, which you're probably thinking, wait, isn't that the title of the sermon itself? Yes, it is. Uh, and it's pretty clear why. This whole text centers around this dream sequence here. And so we're just emphasizing it again for this part of the sermon. So what do we have here? Well, we have this, this statue with a golden head, silver torso and arms, bronze upper legs, lower legs of iron and feet mixed of iron and clay. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? Well, fortunately for us, Daniel immediately interprets, he meets the king's demand and interprets uh, after giving the content of the dream. I think the, uh, a big overarching takeaway is that this image, this statue is an image, which is the Hebrew word salem, the same word we use for man being made in the image of God. This statue is what we want. It's our heart's desire. It's our greatness carved out in precious stone for the whole world to see how magnificent we are. But look at it, even in this dream, it doesn't last. It's temporary. It degrades over time. It's an allegory for how short-lived we can be when we are the most important person in our story. You know, as, as I was thinking of a way to kind of illustrate this or give us a picture of this, I always love movie references or, or movie storytelling, and I really love the, the work of, uh, of a director himself. Anyone familiar with Martin Scorsese movies? Yeah, I'm sure a few. Uh, and obviously some rough movies. I, I don't want to uh, skimp over that. But I love his method of storytelling. You know, if you, the, the joke is that if you've seen one Martin Scorsese movie, you've seen them all. And I don't think that's necessarily true. But it is true that he loves telling the story of, of rise and fall kind of narrative. He loves seeing this less than, usually a less than legal enterprise, experience growth and magnificence and, and glory only for it all to fall apart later on usually due to the very same criminal tendencies that helped it grow in the first place. We love to see ourselves in high esteem. We love to see ourselves lifted up for the world to see. But if we're doing it on our own, apart from a good father, we're setting ourselves up for a spectacular fall, just like so many characters in the mind of someone like Scorsese or like we see the characters here, like, like the rulers and the kingdoms that try to come after Nebuchadnezzar. And although there's a touch of disagreement on maybe what the third or fourth kingdom, uh, you know, the dates or how they apply or whatnot, the vast majority of biblical scholars see the, the four parts of this stat statue representing four different kingdoms. The first one is the only one that's named, albeit indirectly. Because the golden head represents Nebuchadnezzar himself, we know that it represents the Babylonian empire. The next three kingdoms, in chronological order and working your way down the statue, uh, represent three kingdoms that would directly affect Israel for the next several centuries. We've got first the Babylonian Empire, then we have the Medo-Persian Empire, which will have Cyrus as his head and will be the one who helped the Jews get back to Jerusalem towards the end of the book of Daniel. Then we've got the Greek Empire, which is often called the Seleucid Empire. This goes from Alexander the Great around 350 B.C., all the way up till uh, 63 BC when they were overthrown by the fourth empire, the, the legs of iron, the, the Roman empire. These are the major empires of the day from Daniel up to the events of the New Testament. 
And that intermingling they talked about a lot towards the end, the, the mixing of iron and clay, it, it's meant to convey the, the impurity these later empires will experience because of their tendency to marry outside of, of national or ethnic lines. And I think that there are more immediate historical reasons, but tradition has often said that the fall of Rome was precipitated by a, a, a moral collapse, a moral failure from this weakening of growing too close to the nations that it, and the people that it had conquered. This was a strong image. There, there was a value in this ancient world to purity, and seeing an increased level of impurity would be alarming to any secular empire or someone who ruled it, like Nebuchadnezzar himself. Another question is, is why does the statue seemingly decrease in value as it goes from head to foot? I think the most obvious reason is that the head of the greatest empire is more powerful than the heads of the various empires that follow. And what I mean by that is, you know, certainly Cyrus and Alexander the Great were great rulers, but they also operated with systems of, you know, increasing system, you know, systems of checks and balances that moved kind of away from a single person to more, uh, you know, a practical democratic uh, method of running a functioning government over an empire. And so it's not as flashy, it's not as appealing to the eye, but it's more practical and longer lasting and enduring. I, I think that's kind of what they're working towards. But there is also the fact that this is a specific prophecy speaking about events very far ahead in the future. And most modern critical scholarship cannot handle that, cannot deal with the fact that they were able to speak so accurately about this. They actually want us to use this, use this passage and others like it, as a way to cause us to doubt the accuracies of the scripture. You know, the, the idea is that this is clear proof that someone other than Daniel wrote this book because he has such accurate knowledge of future events. But the rebuttal for us is, is simple. We, we don't deny that it's incredible for Daniel to have such detailed knowledge of future events. But the reason it's incredible is because the word doesn't come from him. It comes from our incredible God. If God truly created all things, time included in one of those things he created, then his relationship with things in the past, present, and future is wholly different than our own. He's what theologians often call omnitemporal, which just means equally present in all moments of time, past, present, and future. He's able to see into the future more easily than you or I could see in the present right now. And if God wanted to reveal his knowledge of future outworkings of kingdoms and armies and rulers through this image, this statue, that should not somehow weaken our faith in Scripture if anything, it should strengthen it and encourage us in the fact that when our God says something is going to happen, it means it's going to happen. It will not fail, and it will not change according to the decree of our constant and sovereign God. How about this? Take a look at verse 35, where, where it describes the metals as being chaff that the wind blows away. And then in verse 40, where, where the iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Anyone? Okay. Well, if not, uh, it's probably because you are not a Jew in the 7th century BC in exile in Jerusalem. But I can tell you, they knew that what this meant. These are references to similar passages in Psalms 1 and 2. In Psalms 1-4, it says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And then in Psalm 2-9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's a potter's vessel made of? It's made of clay. So this is imagery. We see that you know Psalm 1 and 2 were some of the most well-known and often used psalms by Israel in the years after David's life and death, King David. And so what God is doing through Daniel is using language that the original readers would instantly have recognized, even if Nebuchadnezzar didn't yet know it. 
But I hope you can see that these two parallel narratives, the, the dream and its interpretation, they're, they're building towards something. The statue is not the most important part of this dream. The climax of the narrative is actually the destruction of the statue. Think of that, a magnificent monument built up for earthly kingdoms to see, made of some of the finest and most precious metals, and it is completely shattered on what? An ordinary stone that was not touched by earthly hands. A stone is something that kings and kingdoms will be destroyed upon. It's stronger than any hardened metal or any precious jewel. If you aren't sure, do you see what that stone is? Or maybe do you see who that stone is? It's Jesus. It is our Lord and Savior. He is the precious cornerstone that also serves as the breaking point for anyone who does not believe in him. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells his disciples that he is the cornerstone. And when he does that, he uses the following language when telling the parable of the wicked servants who killed their master's beloved son. He says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is hard language that follows from here, but it comes from the Bible. It doesn't come from me. Jesus is abundantly clear that salvation is found within him, but so is judgment. When Jesus comes again to rule over all creation, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and King. Not many, not most, but every for those who do not receive the coming of Jesus as Lord with joy, there will be great fear, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. It's what we often call hell, eternal punishment based on the judgment of a righteous God. But in that very same story where Jesus calls himself the cornerstone, we see that the cornerstone has a purpose beyond just breaking or bashing. It's to build up, to uphold, to maintain something incredible. And that's what Daniel sees too. Uh, when we see in verse 44, he says the following, and in the days of those, of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The cornerstone is crucial for God's plan of building and establishing a kingdom that does not break away or fade or grow old or be replaced by another. It is a permanent kingdom of everlasting and infinite value. And we see that this prophecy, just like so many other prophecies in, in Scripture, are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amongst the strength of the seemingly indestructible Roman Empire, Jesus comes along and makes the incredible statement in the Gospel of Mark that the kingdom of God is at hand, and we are to repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus, the cornerstone that both breaks and builds, is the decision point for all of humanity. And if you if you are here today or if you're looking online and you aren't a follower of Christ or if you think that Jesus is too loving or too peaceful to righteously judge humanity for his sin, I beg you, I plead with you, consider Jesus before it's too late. Don't be built upon anything else. Don't rely on your own glory, but repent of sins and believe in the Lord God revealed in Jesus Christ. Rather than looking up at a proud statue, I want you to look up and see a body broken on a cross. 
And rather than an earthly ruler who is just as broken in sin and just as in need of redemption, I want you to look at a true king, a true savior, the true Messiah, Jesus himself. The application for us is simple. We need to be willing to ask ourselves honestly and deeply and personally, where do I stand on the stone? Is he something that will crush me and and my self-obsession, my sin, my, my vanity, my pride, my anger, my fears, and my hopelessness? Or is he my starting point, my building block, the Savior who not only loved me enough to die in my place, but to also show me what righteousness looks like, to display a life that honors him, that is built upon him, and that, that is something I'm encouraged and, and brave enough and, and excited enough to go share with the world that needs to hear his good news. If so, we're doing what we need to do from this story. We're becoming less enthralled by the statue and more in love with the stone. Well, there you have it. We, we, we finally have the dream, and you know what it means. Congratulations. You have as much knowledge as Nebuchadnezzar does in this story. But there is an important unresolved question And and what is it? It's how he responds. How does he act upon hearing this news of a kingdom much greater than his own and that it's on the horizon? I'm calling our last section this morning an unfairy tale ending. So let's read and see why, why I did that. In verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. He should have done that to God, but he got that wrong. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed, appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the actions the king takes here, at least to me, are always a little surprising at first glance. It looks like on the surface, he responds in something close to proper orthodox worship of God. Every time I read this story, I think to myself, man, I did not see that coming. Um, Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the book of Daniel, you'd probably agree with me in saying that We're going to see some more uh, sides of Nebuchadnezzar that say he probably hasn't moved into a position of full faith in God the same way that Daniel has been this whole time. But he does praise God and he blesses Daniel and his friends with positions of great reputation and responsibility. Right knowledge or a proper experience of God's presence is essential to worshiping God and loving others well, to, to take care of others properly. And the big picture thing that we can't miss here is that It's not Nebuchadnezzar that provides this blessing to Daniel. It's God providing the blessing through his instrument, Nebuchadnezzar. Rather than just being solidified as a wise man, God now appoints Daniel as, as being ruler over all these wise men. And when we read that Daniel was made the ruler over the province of Babylon, that's meant to tell us that he was in just about the tightest circle of, of trust that Nebuchadnezzar had. If the king decided to go off and try to conquer a new land, Daniel would be the one left to watch the kingdom and to maintain it and to make sure it prospered while he was gone. Talk about a position of trust, right? I mean, but I think the, re- the response, what Daniel does next, is instructive for us today. We need to remember our context. We're just a few years removed from the forced removal of the Jews from Jerusalem. And I'm sure they would all love to go back to the crown jewel of the promised land, right? 
I think the heart tendency would be to say, okay, here's the moment. God is clearly placing us here for a purpose. Let's kill the king, overthrow the government, establish this as a new chosen nation, and return to the good old days in glory and splendor, right? I feel like that could apply to us as well today. You know, isn't that what we want, just to, to take everything over and rule in a good and Christian way? I think it's okay to say that that might be the case for our hearts because it's, it's a human basic response to receiving power or being tempted by power. But look, Daniel doesn't do that. He, he asks for his friends to be considered for leadership as well. And then how does it end? It ends with Daniel remaining at the king's court. It's not exactly the storming the beaches moment we'd like, and it's not exactly a happily ever after. We don't see a, a huge uprising and overthrow and the events that come later show that, you know, peace and stability don't really happen for the rest of everyone's lives. Rather than the fairy tale ending of heroism or happiness, we get the unfairy tale ending of faithful obedience where God has placed Daniel and his friends. It's to meet the demands of the job they're in and to do it well. It's to live lives that glorify God always and promote the general goodness of the culture that they live in. Does this sound familiar at all? Well, if it doesn't, uh, it, it, it should hearken back to our first sermon in the series when we went through Jeremiah 29, where God gives the Israelites in exile a simple command. He said in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This isn't fancy. This isn't romantic. And this probably isn't what the world would call effective or world-changing or organization-shifting leadership. But the Bible makes, makes the case consistently, especially in the New Testament, that the only viable form of leadership is servant leadership. When we look for leaders in the church or even how Christians should be leaders in a secular environment, humility and service are two of the top things we should look for, what Daniel displays here. There are all sorts of books and seminars and courses to try to turn people into effective leaders or, or influencers or you know, decision makers. But these characteristics given by the Bible are some of the most basic and best we could seek to emulate. Care for those people around you and the community that you found yourself. Seek its goodness and its welfare. Help those around you. And when the Spirit guides you, or if someone just asks about it, be ready to share the gospel. Be ready to make a case for the Christian faith. Be ready to, to love your neighbor all the way to Jesus. Take what God provides, even if it's an unfairytale ending, and make it a moment for God's glory and the eternal goodness of others. So as we start to wrap up this morning, and this long chapter overall, where exactly does that leave us? Well, we've seen that for the second time now, God has shown great favor to Daniel and to his friends. He did it first in chapter 1, and he's done it here in chapter 2. But now he's added this entire class of people. He's shown grace and mercy to this, these wise men themselves. But he's also made a bold proclamation to a hugely powerful king, saying, your kingdom has an expiration date, but mine has no end in, end in sight. It will not be commemorated by precious metals and statues and monuments, but by an otherwise normal stone. That stone that, that shatters and causes others to stumble is actually the foundational cornerstone for those who see it for what it is. This morning as I was prepping, I just had a moment of panic thinking, 
oh my gosh, am I making too much of this cornerstone thing? It, it, it's only in here a couple times. And I realize, I, I think that's an evidence of, of spiritual warfare saying, overlook the stone. Just keep talking about the statue, right? But that's where we're going to end today. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God the Father. In a few weeks during Advent and Christmas, we're going to celebrate the fact that he was born completely as a human. He lived a life and died a death in our place and rose again in triumph over sin and death itself. He is the decision point for all of humanity. Make no mistake, where you stand on Jesus himself is the most important decision you could ever make. Even in churches like this one, we could often use euphemistic or or easy language to kind of get around the point. But today makes it clear, believing and trusting in Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell, between eternal salvation and eternal damnation. There is no in-between. There's no fence to remain on when it comes to Jesus. We started out calling our sermon, The Statue and the Stone. I beseech you, turn away from the statue and put your gaze on the stone. Give your life to him. Build your life upon him. And you will be amazed at what the Lord will do in your life and in the lives of others. 